Welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast, presented by Orion Advisor Solutions and hosted by Dr. Daniel Crosby, Orion's Chief Behavioral Officer and New York Times bestselling author. Each week, Dr. Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest on a range of compelling topics, from literature to psychology to financial wellness. To learn more about Dr. Crosby's behavioral finance work at Orion, visit www.orion.com. Hello, and welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast. I am your usual host, Dr. Daniel Crosby, uh, but I'm joined today by the real host for today, Neil Beige. Neil, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, and thank you even more so for asking me to be a guest host. I am utterly, utterly honored. Yes, so we are flipping the script a bit today, uh, and this is in celebration of the second edition and the paperback edition of The Laws of Wealth. So this is a book that I wrote back in 2016. Uh, it's done very well. It's now been translated into six languages officially and one language unofficially where they, uh, made, <laughs> where they made a copy of it and stole my IP and told me to get lost. <laughs> <laughs> told me to told me to get lost when I tried to pursue it legally. That's a whole different story. But yeah, we'll call it Seven Languages. Uh, it was named the best investment book of the year, the year it came out. And now we're we're welcoming the second edition and the paperback edition uh, with a great foreword by the inimitable Morgan Housel, who who has written quite a book himself. So uh, in celebration of this, uh, you know, this this big moment for me, I thought. We would have Neil come on and and turn the tables on me and, and interview me about my book and uh, we'll go from there. But but before we get in there, Neil, talk a bit about who who you are and what you're up to. Yeah, so I mean, I've been a previous guest on the show too, so you could always jump back to the episode I was on when we talked, Daniel, and people can listen there. But for those who want a quicker answer. Um, I am uh, based in the UK. I was the founder of a behavioral insights fintech company called BIQ, which is where you and I first came across each other a, a long time ago now. And since then, I, you know, I've, I've traveled around the world speaking at, to, at conferences to thousands of business professionals on applied behavioral finance and how advisors can best get, you know, can get the best out of behavioral finance. And latterly, I have become the chief behavioral officer for a financial planning firm in the UK called Murphy Wealth, and also have something else up my sleeve that I can't reveal now, which is incredibly exciting. More on that later, I guess. Yeah, well, we'll have you back back on the show, you and your co-conspirators, who I know well. So we'll, <laughs> we'll, have, you, we'll have you all back on the show uh, to talk about your big announcement then. But Great. Neil, you have prepared some questions. I have looked over them a bit, but I didn't want to look over them too deeply uh, because I value spontaneity and, uh, you know, stumbling and fumbling on my own show. So <laughs> let's, uh, let's jump in. Okay, great. Uh, gosh, I have been so looking forward to this. Um, so listen, I was going to start with a kind of classic question, like tell me why you wrote the book or who is this book aimed at? But, you know, instead, I think we just go straight into the weeds, right? So page 105 in this book, in the chapters, what now section, you suggest that people should ask themselves, am I controlling the controllable? Now, for me, that sentence goes to the heart of human behavior because much of what we do as a human navigating the world is trying to kind of control as much as we can. But we see it in what relationships, the workplace, of course, we see it in investing. So when you write about controlling the controllable in the context of investing success, and I guess this is a three-part question, actually, 
what do you mean when you say controlling the controllable? How do people go about doing that? And then jumping back to rule one in your book, you control what matters most. What if something that I can't control is actually the thing that, you know, perhaps subjectively matters most to me? So I'll, I'll answer the first two, and then I, I, I want to talk with you more about the third. So um, first of all, thank you for, for skipping all the boilerplate typical questions. I, I love that about you. So we will jump in. Controlling the controllable. So when we uh, think about the, the world of investing, uh, so much of it is is out of our power. I mean, 2020 was a fantastic example of that. The pandemic that none of us saw coming, right? You know, we had this big earth-shaking, uh, you know, once once in a century type event, uh, and it had a material impact on the markets, both for you know, both for the bad and then and then ultimately the good, um, given given sort of the governmental uh, response and the mm-hmm. the quickness with which the scientists got us a vaccine. But that's all out of our control, right? I mean, it it has a material impact on the market. I'm not saying that it doesn't. It's just not. It's not knowable. Uh, it's not mm-hmm. controllable. It's not foreseeable. And so much of what people spend their time wringing their hands about uh, falls into this category of sort of unknowable, unworkable, unforeseeable. You know, we try and forecast stock moves and interest rate moves, and we try and forecast, uh, you know, how a a president or a political party is going to vote or, you know, all of these things we try to anticipate as if they are the, the most material part of our investing life. They matter, but they don't matter in any way that we can do anything about. And, and so worrying about them is, is a recipe for driving yourself crazy. And so what I talk about in the book is controlling the controllable. Uh, and there's so much that's controllable. When you look a, a few years ago, Morningstar uh, did, did research on the number one uh, predictor of a fund's performance. And, you know, you think things like, is it the star manager? You know, is it their long-term track record? Uh, is it, you know, how many brilliant quants they have on their team? Well, no, the number one predictor of a fund's track record uh, is its cost. And so cost, like keeping your fees reasonable is controllable. That's within your power. Uh, you know, making sure that you're working with a financial professional there's a lot of research to suggest that people who get advice do better than those who try and go it alone. That's controllable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, contributing to your account every two weeks or every month, like that's controllable. So it, it's less sexy stuff, but it's the only thing that you can do anything about. And it matters a whole lot. And so when you refer back to that early chapter about you control what matters most, I was really, I was really intentional about the the ordering of the this, you know, the sort of commandments that, that that comprise the first half of the book, and so I was intentional about making that the first chapter to say, look, from the outset, let's take the power back, because when you look at research on uh, CEOs and this psychological uh, construct known of locus of control, mm-hmm. you know, so locus of control is is effectively. An internal locus of control says that you act on the world in in meaningful ways and like your decisions and your choices have an impact on on how your life goes. 
And an external locus of control says that you're sort of tossed about by the, you know, the waves of life. This is sort of a learned helplessness response. CEOs and entrepreneurs with an internal locus of control have incredibly much better performance than those with an external locus of control. So that was the thrust of that first chapter to try and help us take the power back, say, you know, your investment results are are not as good or as bad as who's in office or, you know, whether or not there's a a pandemic or, you know, a hundred other things that are out of your control you have more power than you realize. Mm-hmm. So, do you know what? This this was going to be my worry in talking to you. I have a whole, a whole list of questions to ask you, but my head has just exploded with a myriad of other questions. So I've, I've got to try and keep this quite tight. So no, take it, take it, take it where you want to take it. Seriously, like whatever. If we go, if we run down a rabbit hole, that's fine. Do it. Okay, okay. So, you say, okay, we control, control what matters most, right? So maybe fees matter most to me, but I can't control what an advisor charges me, right? And, I, and yes, I can work with a financial professional. I can control me choosing to walk into an advisor's office, but I can't control the, 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 the value or the, the professional integrity of that, that firm. So kind of given there's only so much that we can control in the investing journey, two aspects kind of just jump out to me and I've got your book open next to me to refer this to refer to this. So let's take the four C's, right? Consistency, clarity, courageousness, and conviction. So you have from that courageousness and from the five dimensions of behavioral risk, which are ego, emotion, conservation, information, and attention, you have emotion. So for me, and correct me if I'm wrong in my assumption here, but kind of those words suggest that irrespective of the level of risk I take within my portfolio, the level of control I have, I still need to be brave, but I need to be aware that what I'm about to go on will be an emotional journey. So, I mean, is is that a fair statement? And if that's true, how do advisors, financial advisors, go about laying the right foundations for dealing with the emotional aspects that clients will inevitably encounter? Yeah, so there's there's no doubt that it's an emotional journey, and I think it's even more emotional than than most people appreciate. So this is research from my from my newer book, the the behavioral investor. We'll have, we'll, we'll have you back on when the second edition of that gets, gets uh, released. But you know, one of the things that I found from the behavioral investor that was fascinating is they looked at brain studies, so like F- fMRI studies of folks where they would you know, wire them up uh, to an fMRI and then they would show them different sorts of, sorts of images and then measure the brain's reactivity to those images. So they would show them shocking stuff, like uh, they would show them like pornography, they would show them um, you know, dead animals and like war scenes and, and all these things, right? They would, they would make them contemplate love and lust and death, like all these things that are, that are very evocative. And the thing that sparked the most reactivity in the brain were images around money. So, you know, you think about something like physical attractiveness, you think about something like our, our fear of death, like all of these things are, are powerful emotions and powerful drives. They're not as, they're not as emotion inducing as money. I mean, literally more than sex, more than death, more than anything, we are wired for reactivity around money. So we, we need to have an honest conversation uh, about the fact that that's the case. 
because, you know, it's, it's fascinating to me when I look back on my career, when I was early uh, in my, in my graduate program, I, I called my dad who is, you know, among other things, sort of my informal career coach, you know, and I said to him, like, look, I'm not, I'm not loving this. I'm not loving this course of study, like in clinical psychology. I, I, I love to, to think about why people do the things that they do. And, uh, but I, but I don't necessarily love doing it in, in sort of a clinical psychology setting. And he said, well, Hey, you should consider business. You should consider markets because there's a ton of psychology in, in the work that I do as a financial advisor. And I, and I remember at the time, you know, in my early twenties being like, what are you, what are you talking about? Like you, you know, you, um, you do numbers stuff. And I think, you know, I think a lot of people think of finance as this world of sort of very buttoned up numerical analytical decision-making and don't realize how fraught and how emotional uh, this journey is. So what can, what can advisors do to sort of manage these emotions? Well, first of all, I think they can have candid conversations with, with people uh, about the fact that it is so emotional. Uh, second, you know, I talk, I talk in, in, in both of my more recent books about the power of pre-commitments. And one of the, the pre-commitments that, that I encourage advisors to make with their clients is to sort of promise to never make a, a decision at a point of emotional extremes. Mm-hmm. You know, we lose people. We, we, we know that people lose like 13% of their, their cognitive processing power at emotional extremes. We know that the best decisions that, that we make around money tend to be sort of cold, um, you know, sort of cold, placid, emotional state type decisions. And so I think you just need to, to pre-agree with your clients uh, to, to keep, uh, you know, keep fear and greed off the table. But even when you, when you do that, you're, you're still going you're, you're to encounter problems. And, and so I've, I've proposed sort of this 3E framework. Right. So the first E is for education. You mm-hmm. educate you, you educate clients uh, a, a, as to how markets work, as to the reality of, of how emotional it is, et cetera. The second E is around environment. Right. You put them in a por- por- portfolio um, that is, you know, perhaps bucketed uh, in a way that, that they, they have a feeling of, of safety. You know, I've we could talk a long time about this, but we're doing some work right now at Orion around around bucketing in a way that presents clients' assets to them in a way that gives them some comfort. Uh, you know, the environment means having the right portfolio mix, the right mix of assets, so that they can take that journey. Mm-hmm. And then the thirty is for encouragement. Like even if you've told them how markets work, you've educated them. You know. Uh, to, to the extent possible, you've put them in this great portfolio, you have a plan, you've done all this right, there's still going to be moments where that emotion seeps through. Uh, and that's where the power of an advisor comes in, in sort of this encouragement, coaching, just in time feedback yeah. uh, to, to sort of help that client avoid their worst impulses at a time of great emotion. So it, it really takes all those things, the right education, the right environment, and the right encouragement or coaching. Yeah, I've used this phrase before, Daniel. I know you've heard me say this, that you know, for me, the role of a financial advisor is one of a, a, a navigator, if you like, someone who can help clients navigate the, the, the journey that they're on the bumps in the road and, and know when to step in and know what to say at the right time to the right client. And that takes skill. 
you know, and 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 it takes an acute awareness of how people navigate the world around them. And equally, it kind of it also takes into to fact that or into account that we are a highly emotional species. And you mentioned a word then about fear, and that our cognitive capacities reduce when you know when, when we're emotional. And you know, you and I both know that the prefrontal cortex is inhibited under under conditions of stress and anxiety and fear, which means we can't think straight in the first place. Um, but but fear is quite an, a, a strong kind of loaded word, if you like, which kind of leads me into, the, I want to challenge you if I can about something in the book linked to this subject. Um, now, if I, I, I just quickly turn to the front to the 10 rules, the 10 commandments, if you like, in the first half of the book. And rule number three states that trouble is opportunity. Now, I've just mentioned this, right? There's a biological, a difficult biological barrier here because we are evolutionary wired to avoid trouble. You know, we have an amazing kind of bloodhound-esque ability to sniff out trouble from a hundred yards and sprint in the opposite direction. But we also know that if we do face trouble head on, it can elicit fear in some people, but kind of a raw excitement in others. So let's just take that subset of people and then look at rule number four, which states, if you're excited, it's a bad idea. Now, I guess my question is, how do people deal with that? Because it feels paradoxical, right? You know, they face an opportunity which is centered in trouble, ergo an opportunity, but that trouble elicits feelings of excitement or thrill. So it's a long lead into the question, Daniel. So how do people not get excited and carried away with it all? And I'm kind of thinking GameStop here as an example. And, and, and is that linked to the previous question where we discussed courage? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a great question. And, and I think uh, like so many things in, in behavioral finance, uh, the answer is uh, not very complicated, but it is very powerful. Uh, mm. So I think, th- I think the, the few things that you can do here, uh, the first thing you can do, and it would be sort of my meta rule, like if I could just tell people one thing to do, it, it would be to automate. Uh, because mm. one of the things that we know is that at, at just about every turn, uh, the markets are, are made to make us look bad. And, you know, what, what I've written about in my two books is, is really just like we, we couldn't basically be wired any worse for this. We couldn't be why, you know, we couldn't have been created any more poorly. Like we're created for action. We're created for emotion. We're created to act on impulse. And all of these things have served us well evolutionarily. Um, but, but all of these things are profoundly bad for, for markets. Yeah. So, you know, we know that our brain hasn't had an, an upgrade in, you know, 200,000 years plus, and yet, uh, you know, well-developed stock markets like the ones in, in, in your country and mine are, are four or 500 years old. So we're, we're very literally not wired for this. So hmm. you, you are correct that if we try and just uh, take the, the decisions as they come, and I think this is what many people do. They go, okay, well, now coronavirus is here. What do I do about this? Now GameStop's yeah. mooning. Like, you know, what do, I, what do I do about this? Instead of having a discipline that's automated and just baked in. So automating the process of just, you know, contributing, <laughs> contributing whenever you get a paycheck and buying a, a broad swath of assets 
Um, it's a simple rule, but you'll mm. be just about every professional uh, discretionary money manager on, on the planet if you can do that over long periods of time, uh, the, the trick is where we try and confront these individual situations uh, and and try and make a, a discretionary, judgment-led individual decision that that violates our larger rules. You know, one of the most interesting things I, I came across when when putting this book together. I was actually researched that I was turned on to by uh, Wes Gray of uh, Dr. Wes Gray of, of Alpha Architect. Mm-hmm. And it was a meta-analysis. Uh, so this is like a study of all the studies of, of how often human discretion beats uh, rules-based decision-making. And, and what they found was that 94% of the time, following simple rules or following simple algorithms beat even you know, PhD level human discretion. Uh, one of the ones I, I thought was fascinating uh, was studying prison recidivism. So, you know, what we, you know, here in the US, we have an enormous prison problem. We have you know, 1% of our population incarcerated. And so one, you got 1% of Americans in, in jail. And then of course there's an overcrowding problem. And so what do we do? Well, we have parole and we try and figure out who's deserving of, of being let back in on, on the street. Mm-hmm. And so the way that we used to do that was uh, to convene panels of, of well-educated experts in human behavior, like the two of us, Neil. And you of know, course. <laughs> like, right. And they would say, uh, you know, okay, Neil and Daniel, and you know, two other Neil and Daniels, um, you know, do do you think this, this person in front of you is repentant? Like, you know, are they a menace to society now? Can they go free? Uh, and what they found was that was enormously ineffective. What they do now is they look at two variables. They look at what are they in for? Like, you know, what, what kind of crime brought them to prison in the first place? Was it a violent offense or was it, you know, sort of a low-level drug, convi- drug conviction or, or what was it, right? What was the nature of the behavior that, that brought them into jail and how mm-hmm. serious was that? Uh, and then the second thing they look at was how did they act in jail? You know, were, were, they, were they on good behavior? Were they, you know, acting uh, a fool or, or, or somewhere in between? And those two variables, right? Like just not looking deep in their eyes and asking them if they, if they you know, found religion or that they had reformed, getting experts to look at them, looking at those two simple variables uh, outperforms the, the, the panel of experts by nearly 400%. Wow. And, the, and, the, and the same thing is true of making decisions about, about your investing life. You know, a very simple rule like save, ter- save 10% of my income and sock it away in a diversified basket of funds uh, you know, every two weeks is going to destroy, you know, just about, just about every more complicated discretionary uh, approach. And, and actually that automation, automation is a big area that, that, you know, I know you talk about it. I talk about it. I've heard others talking about it. I do this in my own life, right? So as much as I understand the foibles of human behavior, I'm also accepting of where my weaknesses and strengths are too. And one of them, one of the areas that I knew years years ago that I needed to improve on was a regular was regular savings. So I found an app in the UK and link it to my bank account. Every week it goes in, it analyzes my income, my expenditure, 
and it takes a small amount of money out and it kind of squirrels it away into a, into an account. I get very little interest from that and it's not invested in the markets, but actually automating that part of my life and me being blind to it to a degree um, is absolutely a great kind of commitment device, if you like. I, I, I look at it infrequently and I'm always shocked by how much money is in there you know, because you, 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 you know, you see it the, using U.S. currency here. You know, you see the, you've said, well done, Neil. You've saved twenty dollars this week. Well done, Neil. Thirty-six dollars this week, and you kind of just go, nah. So what? And then six months down the line, you look at it and you've got a thousand dollars, and you go, wow, that's actually quite powerful. And I've I've linked that to an automatic a savings app, sorry, an investing app, which then kind of has automatic rebalancing on it. It does phased investments, so I'm not trying to time the markets. And and that gives me the automation I need to be able to 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 invest. But but what I'm getting what I'm getting at there is, and going back to what you've just said, is that it's kind of it, it becomes kind of obvious, right? That investing is actually hard. It's hard to start in the first place, and it's really hard to stay the course because we're emotional. Now, I suspect that's what you meant by your second rule that you can't do this alone. And we've just talked about export experts. So I'm assuming this point's kind of in the direction of someone to help, perhaps a, a financial advisor, right? But then there's a major challenge there for financial advisors. Now, you mentioned in the book, um, Brian Portnoy, our friend Brian, and you say that in his book, The Investor's Paradox, that he, he cites that only 5% of professional fund managers have any discernible skill at their job. So it feels like financial advisors are actually caught between a rock and a hard place because on one side, you've got the emotional human the person whose money and dreams and aspirations are at stake. And on the other side, an industry of experts in, in quote, 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 speech marks, who kind of seemingly add this thick, opaque layer over the process by adding complexity and confusion into the mix. So if that's the case, if we have this rock and a hard place situation going on, what can advisors do better? What kind of proactive and meaningful steps can they take to factor in the human into the investment advice that they give at the outset, but kind of also on an ongoing basis. Yeah, so great. I want to I want to speak to your savings app thing for a minute, and then get to your mm. your second question. I'm yeah. sitting here laughing, and I'm I'm having a flashback to one of my worst, my one of my least favorite um, professional memories that I that I feel like I should share here. So in 2013. <laughs> Uh, in 2013, I had a client who thought it would be cool for me to do, um, you know, person on the street interviews with folks in Times Square in New York uh, about their financial decisions. And so I had a camera crew with me, and there I am, you know, uh, fresh from fresh from Alabama, standing in in the middle of Times Square with a microphone, you know, going, "Excuse me, sir. Excuse me, ma'am. You know, what's the what's the best financial decision you've ever made?" And um, you know, I, I love New York and I love New Yorkers, but they're not, you know, they're not, they're not famously warm on a January day when it's like 12 degrees uh, for having a microphone shoved in their face. And so uh, got a lot of kind of like, leave me alone looks. And it was very awkward for me. But um, the, the people that did talk to me, it, it was fascinating to me because every single one of them, every single person said that the house, like that, that real estate or a home, was was the best uh, you know financial decision they've ever made. Now mm. some of these people were New Yorkers, and you know New York real estate has done very well. But you know many of them were for, from all over the country, because that's the, the the nature of Times Square. 
And so to a person, uh, they said that, that investing in real estate, investing in residential real estate was the best financial decision they've ever made. And, and almost to a person, they said that investing in the stock market was you know, one, of the, one of the dumbest things they've ever done. And it's right. wild because if you, if you look at the returns of residential real estate in the US over the last hundred years, and they barely kept up with inflation. I mean, mm. there's certainly, you know, there's certainly uh, exceptions to that rule, places like Manhattan. Um, but but it's wild to me that 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 people who are investing in this asset class with really sort of muted returns have such a high opinion of it. And the reason is exactly what you talked about with your savings app. What they did was they contributed each month, right? They got to pay that mortgage each month. Mm-hmm. So every, you know, every month they're chipping away at this big savings goal of theirs and it's illiquid. You know, I mean, it's hard to sell your house, right? You're, you're yep. going through that right now, right? It's hard, it's hard to sell your house uh, until recently with the advent of some of the new Zillow and, and, and Trulia and these other real estate apps, you didn't know moment to moment what your house was worth, right? You weren't mm-hmm. sort of always peaking. You didn't have this real-time mark-to-market um, you know, idea of what your house was worth. And so that's what people did. That's why real estate feels like a good investment, yeah. uh, even when it hasn't really been historically, because you're yeah. sort of forced to contribute every month and you leave it alone. So if you can apply that same methodology, contribute every month and leave it alone, to something like uh, stocks that, that have historically done much, much better than, than real estate, then, then you're off to the races. So small digression there, because I was re- remembering freezing, <laughs> freezing my butt off in, in Times Square. In Times Square. Actually, so hang on, before we move on, let me just go back on this, because this is an interesting question. I, well, I, it's an interesting question for me, right? We'll let the listeners be the judge of that. Do you, do, do you feel that the reason why people seem so kind of enamored with um, – with real estate compared to stock market investing is because real estate, when you look at your house, right, you finish work and you go home and you know, you're paying your mortgage on this bricks and mortar, this thing that I can touch, that I can see, that I can feel around me. Whereas stocks, stock investing is kind of just this thing. It's kind of out there. I can't touch it and I can't feel it. I can't smell it. So actually it doesn't play to any of my senses in that regard, whereas kind of bricks and mortar does, do you, do you think there's anything in that or, or, or not? Yeah, there's there's so many behavioral reasons why why real estate is sort of the preference, I think, of a, of a lot of folks. You know, I talked about a couple of them, right? Uh, there's also what you're talking about. You know, I'm here, of course, in my, in my home right now doing this podcast. And I mean, I have um, innumerable good memories of this home, right? I mean, you know, just down the hall is where I do... Um, my, my family band, you know, with, with my family right outside my window here is where I taught my son to play cat, you know, right upstairs is where I do uh, French language lessons with my daughter. You know, I mean, there's, you know, right, right, right around the corners where my other daughter took her first steps. I mean, there's a million, you know, there's a million positive emotional associations with, with my home that right. I don't, you know, share with an index fund, right? I mean, it doesn't have, <laughs> you know, it doesn't have sort of the same emotional valence. So like you bring up, you bring up a great point there. And then the, you know, there's another big behavioral one called the money illusion, where, where people fail, uh, where, where people fail to account for inflation when they're doing their math, like, especially on a home purchase. So, you know, my, my parents bought uh, a home when I was four, four or five years old, the home I grew up in, they paid $150,000 for it. 
And, you know, uh, when, when all the us kids went to college, they sold it and they got uh, uh, roughly $300,000 for it. And so you point to that and you go, oh my gosh, like, you know, mom and dad, two X their money. Like, you know, the mom and dad doubled, doubled their money. (laughs) Well, what you fail to account for was that was a, uh, you know, that was a, whatever, a 21, 22 year period, uh, over which that happened. The value of money has changed dramatically. Yeah. The opportunity cost of that money is very significant. I mean, if you had put that 140 in the stock market, it would have likely been more like seven or 800. And so we don't account for opportunity cost. We don't account for inflation. Yeah. Uh, and we have all these positive mental associations with it. And it's kind of uh, illiquid. You know, we, we, again, we can't really mess with it in the same way that you can uh, sell a stock. So there's there's a lot of behavioral reasons why people esteem real estate to be a better investment than it actually is. Right, right. Okay, yeah, that was a digression, but but interesting nonetheless. <laughs> so no, so now back to your oh god, I fully forgot. <laughs> <laughs> so so I asked you. I'm going to have to try and remember what I asked you as well. So I asked you about the challenge for financial advisors. So everything about that we've talked about so far points to you can't do this alone. So get, you know, use a financial advisor. Um, and then I mentioned that I feel like financial advisors are caught between a rock and a hard place because on one side, you have the emotional human who you have to deal with, whose money, dreams, and aspirations are at stake. But on the other hand, they're dealing with an industry of experts who seemingly add these thick, opaque layers of complexity and confusion. So what's the best thing, you know, what, what's the best tips we can give financial advisors to kind of proactively and meaningfully factor in the human into the investment investment advice that they give at outset and on an ongoing basis. Yeah. So you, this is now. Now I'm remembering the question. So you you talked about Brian, <laughs> our our mutual friend, Doctor uh, Brian Portnoy. He yes. he, he's written a couple of great books. In one of them, he talks about the fund industry uh, based on his deep experience there, and, and talks about how only five percent of professional uh, fund selectors. Uh, show evidence of skill, which is better than the better than the one in three hundred and sixty day traders that show skill. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, but not a but not a lot better. Oh, oh so, yeah, only only a wee bit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so what what's interesting is I think when you, when you look at the data around what people think they're getting when they hire a financial professional, right? What what do people think the value of a financial professional is? They think it's fund selection, uh, mm. and it's not. Like, as you know, as, as we can see in, in the research, right, people think that when they hire, you know, a financial advisor, they're going to get someone who's going to put them in this, you know, uh, the, the, the hottest stocks, uh, you know, the best funds. And that simply is, is not the case, right? Uh, you know, I, I don't think that financial advisors or, or even, um, you know, some of the fund selectors that we talked about on average, they don't they don't show evidence of of skill in selecting funds that meaningfully outperform over the long run. There's also interesting research that shows that uh, you know institutional fund managers the 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 managers they fire uh, end up doing better over the next three years than the managers that they hire. So yeah. you know we have we have evidence that you know even the even the professional money managers fall prey to some of the same. Uh, behavioral biases that the rest of us do, but that's not the value added by the average financial advisor. And what what the average financial advisor does is they keep you out of three or four 
monumentally bad decisions over an investment lifetime, uh, and they help guide your behavior. You know, if you look at um, the you know the past few years, we've had uh, the the hits just keep, seem to keep coming quicker and quicker. Like in the last twenty years, we've had we've had a tech bubble, we've had a great financial crisis, we've had a corona crisis. All three of those were huge opportunities for you to really get it wrong, right? Like yeah, if you yeah. if you chased if you chased tech stocks at the wrong time, you lost your shirt, right? Mm. Um, if you were not careful during the great financial crisis and you overinvested in in real estate or some of these highly levered products, you lost your shirt. Like if you panicked. Right. If you panic during the Corona crisis, when we had the, uh, the the quickest bear market of all time, you you really saw uh, took a meaningful hit. And yet, the role of an advisor is to keep you calm, steady, rules based, and even headed during these sort of extraordinary times. And if your advisor has done that, right? If your advisor saved you from a panic sell, from a liquidation in any one of those three events. They have more than made their money up, right? They, they've, right? they've saved you more money than you will ever pay them um, if they've kept you from, from a poor decision. So we as an industry, you know, speaking to how, how we can get better at this, we, we have to start to tell a new story. Like we have sort of competed on performance for so long. We've, we've pitched performance. We've advertised performance. Uh, and it doesn't serve anyone well. It's just not what we do best as an industry. You know, the evidence is there that that working with an advisor provides uh, sort of myriad benefits, uh, none of which are sort of getting on the next rocket ship, um, you know, to, to easy money. That's not what advisors are best used for. Uh, and the quicker we can start to tell a new story as an industry, uh, the more that that our clients, I think, will come around. Yeah, I, 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 and I also think Daniel, to add to that, I, I feel that advisors also need to start in this in in, in what you've just said about telling a new story. I also think we need to be, or they need to be braver in telling advisors where they are really delivering value. Um, you know that the thing you said there, what, when you talk someone off that you know metaphorical cliff edge when they're about to jump because the markets have just dropped. And, you know, even in the UK at the beginning of the virus, you know, I remember turning on the BBC News and seeing a headline of five trillion pounds wiped off the stock market. And, you know, these headlines just make people walk to that precipice. They make them because they, they can't deal with that information, as well as having to deal with a virus and lockdown and kids at home, all of the other stuff, the emotional challenging stuff that they had to deal with. So I think... The, the stories advisors tell their clients is absolutely crucial, but they shouldn't be shy, I feel, in coming forward and telling them also where they add their value to. Yeah, that's that's right. And I, I actually have a lot of empathy for advisors in trying to tell a new story because it's very difficult, right? I mean, it's not as immediately uh, ascertainable that, that you know, you're going to add a lot of value by hand-holding and behavioral coaching and, and sort of, you know, tax, tax alpha and, you know, these, mm. these different things that advisors do that are not as, as, as sort of immediately and, and viscerally impactful as saying, like, I'm going to put you, you know, I'm going to put you in the next GameStop. Right. Uh, but, it's, but it's also a promise that we can deliver on 
uh, and a promise that the research shows shows is powerful. And so one of the things that I notice as an industry is we tend to want to have it both ways, right? That, that, that like when things are good, you know, that when our performance is great, we go, hey, look, you know, look, look what I did for you. And then when performance suffers, we go, no, 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 I'm a like, no, I'm a behavioral coach, <laughs> you know, like I'm going to keep like, well, that, no, that's not me. And, and I, I see that a lot. And I think we have to tell a consistent story. You know, one of the chapters, uh, you know, one of the chapters in, in the book we're talking about today, the laws of wealth talks about how the truest words in investing are this too shall pass. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, when, when we have really good years and our clients are singing our praises, we have to to temper that a little bit. And it doesn't like nobody wants to temper someone's enthusiasm for their services, mm. but we have to say, Hey, Hey, you know, like, look, <laughs> we were up 18% last year. Like that's probably not going to happen. You know, that was right. definitely not going to happen every year. It's probably not going to happen this year. So don't, you know, don't, don't get your hopes up. And that's not as fun as saying, you know, like, heck yeah, look what, look what I did for you. And, but yeah, we have to train our clients, I think, to, to think about our services in the right way. Yeah, there is. And then, and before I get into my final question, I just, let, just want to finish off on this bit. I think there's another, there's a real um, opportunity, I guess. And I've seen this with my own eyes with, with Murphy Wealth, who I'm working with at the moment. And, in showing that in showing clients that you care about them deeply, irrespective of the investment, irrespective of the services you provide. Part of the service is that you care. And I've seen this with with, with Murphy Wealth. They reached out to clients during the pandemic, not to say, let me talk about your investment. Have you got any, any more money to invest? But they reached out just to say, we're here for you. If there's anything you want to talk about, we're here. Full stop. You know, period. That's it. I'm not going to talk about anything else. I just want you to know that I'm here and that we care. And the the feedback that they've received from that was, you know, I don't think you can put a price on that, on the feedback they had, because it was incredible. People saying, wow, thank you. Because actually just having the ability to talk to someone about me feeling anxious or worried about what's going on in the world generally is great because a lot of clients are sitting at home stewing in their own anxieties. And the fact that we can reach out because we know these people is a great human super skill that I think we should um we should we should bake into our narrative. I think. Well, so it you know it's interesting. I was listening I was listening to a podcast yesterday, and I'll get to that in a second. But but it made me think of this this very thing because one of the things that we know about our memory is that our memory is best uh, in sort of extraordinary times. We have. Mm. We have a really strong memory for, for powerful positive experiences and powerful negative experiences. And, you know, if you think back on your childhood, mine is kind of a blur at this point, if I'm honest. <laughs> but like the stuff, you know, the stuff you remember is, is, is like going to Disney World and getting stuffed in a locker, right? I mean, these are the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Things, these are the things you, you remember, the very best times and the very worst times. And the same is true of our, you know, the same is true of our clients. So advisors who were proactive during the coronavirus, right? Advisors who in the, you know, the depths of fear were proactively reaching out and adding value and, and extending a hand, you know, financial mm. or otherwise, your clients will never forget that. And, and likewise, if you ran and hid during this time, your, your clients will never forgive that. So I mean, it's yes. a time, it's, it's a time to really be uh, on our best behavior, if you will, and, and really be doing the best. 
the, the podcast I was listening to yesterday, it's a philosophy podcast that I love. And it was talking about Eric Fromm's book, The Art of Loving, which is like one, you know, a, just an absolute gem of a book, a fantastic book. And he was talking about the, you know, love. And all I was thinking about were, were client advisor relationships. <laughs> I'm very, <laughs> I'm, I'm very far gone at this point, but, but I was thinking about how, you know, we don't, we don't speak about it in terms of love for, for obvious reasons and because we get HR involved. But I think if we, if we <laughs> love, if we do love our clients in the, you know, in the broadest sense, in the broadest sense of that word, um, They'll, they'll be with us forever. And if we, if we show that love in, in natural ways that we're, it's a true affinity and a true concern for our clients. And we show that to them. I think you'll have a client for life. You know, Robert Cialdini, who did all the great work on influence, he lists his sort of, he calls them weapons of influence, which is not very loving, but you know, if he talks about you know, <laughs> six weapons of influence and he, he lists them in the order in which they are powerful. And his number one weapon of influence is reciprocity, which is basically kindness. Like yep, if, yep. if someone does something kind for you, you're likely to do something kind for them. And so uh, it's not, uh, you know, if we, if we want to talk about how to uh, engender great behavioral outcomes for clients, like you, you have to start talking about words like love and kindness. And, uh, you know, that doesn't, sell very well at, 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 at a, at a financial conference, but, but it's true. Like love and kindness and reciprocity are, are the, are the ways in which we, um, you know, really engender good behavior in our clients. No, I, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And, and maybe it may be a conversation for another day, but I'm going to look up that book, the art of loving sounds like a great book. Great Um, book. So listen, I'm conscious of time. So I'm going to kind of jump into my final question. I, I've got to say this, right? And I'm not just, you know, blowing smoke your way, but I, I, I love this book. I've loved all of the books you've written. Um, I love talking to you. I love spending time with you. You know, I, I think back to the day you and I and your beautiful daughters spent walking around London. It was such a great day. So, you know, th- having the opportunity to talk to you like this has been amazing. So thank you um, for, for, for asking me to do this. But my final question is about your future plans, I guess, right? So you've written you're not that great. You've written personal benchmark, the laws of wealth, which is what we're talking about here. You've written the behavioral investor. And of course you've written your amazingly titled children's book. Everyone you love will die. <laughs> I realized yesterday, the tone in which you say that sentence changes its, its impact. Um, it's an amazing book, by the way, I, I downloaded it on my Kindle, but anyway, your first book was published in 2012. So, kind of next year would be its 10th anniversary, that book coming out. So have you got any plans to share more wisdom with the world to mark the anniversary? So, yeah, uh, I'm, uh, you're not the only one, Neil, you're not the only one with the top secret project. So I can say, <laughs> I can say that I, uh, d- not to be outdone, I am in conversations with a, uh, a, a prominent member of our industry about co-authoring, uh, about co-authoring a book. And we are in the early stages of, of hammering out what, what that would look like. And so, um, there's no doubt that, that I'll be writing more in the future, you know, uh, early, early on in the pandemic, I was reading, I think this, the same articles as, as everyone else, uh, about Shakespeare. I'm, I'm spacing the exact work that Shakespeare wrote. Maybe it was Macbeth, um, during, during a time of quarantine. And I was like, okay, well, maybe this is, you know, maybe this is when I write my Macbeth. 
uh, and what I've done, uh, what I've done instead was homeschool my children and bake, bake lots of bread and worry too much. So I haven't written Macbeth. Uh, <laughs> I haven't written Macbeth or the financial equivalent of Macbeth during, during lockdown, but I am in early conversations uh, with, with someone you'll know uh, about yeah, yeah. writing the next book. So that's, that's, uh, that's coming, but, but perhaps not, not too, too quickly. No, no, that's great. It's great just to know that you're going to continue to share your wisdom with the world because I find, you know, that there's, there's, there's a, there's a few people who can get the subject matter across in such a, a digestible and enjoyable way as, as you can. So, um, I, I love what you do. I love what you write. I love your, I love your podcast. Um, Listen, let's draw the interview to a close before we get too too, too mushy, before we go back to the art of loving <laughs> again. <laughs> Daniel, thank you so much for asking me to do this. Uh, it's been a real honor. And um, uh, yeah, if you haven't got the Laws of Wealth book, take it from me. You know, get get online, get it ordered now. Um, you will not be disappointed. Daniel, yeah. back to you, mate. Thank you. Thank you. I'm taking, I'm taking the wheel back. So Neil, thank you. Incredible work. And thank you for the plug. Yes. If you haven't picked up the laws of wealth yet, get it, get the new, new edition with the, with the Morgan Housel intro. Uh, Neil, if people want to know more about your work, where can they follow you online? Where can they find your, your, your writing and your thinking? Uh, so my website is neilbage.com, N-E-I-L-B-A-G-E.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Neil Bage. Um, and also I have my own podcast, the Bite Size Behavior Podcast. So you can look that up on all normal places and listen to me delivering bite-sized behavioral insights. Neil, thank you so much, brother. And uh, let's, uh, let's, let's wander around London again soon. Look forward to it, mate. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to Standard Deviations. If you can't wait till next week for more behavioral finance insights, visit www.orion.com. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion and its affiliate subsidiaries and employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.